I'm less interested in, you know, is the internet good for Kanye West? I'm more interested in, is the internet good for that person with maybe 10,000 followers that, you know, talks about home gardening? Hi, this is the Indie University's podcast by Questo. I'm your host, Shelton. If you're a first-time listener, this is a podcast where we speak with founders, creators, community builders, and investors in the online learning space. My guest for today is John Danner. John is an American entrepreneur who founded NetGravity, the world's first advertising server company. Uh, among that, also Rocketship and Zeal Learning. He currently runs a venture capital fund called Dunce Capital, which invests in organizations building for the future of learning and work, such as Prenda and Lambda School. I'm sure you've heard of those. In this episode, John talks about his motivations, getting into education, the evolution of online learning, monetization for educators, and a neat little story about the Apple II from 1985. If you don't have time to check out the entire episode, click the link in the description to access the entire episode transcribed for your reading pleasure. Enjoy. Hi, John. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining in. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So, John, you've been around in the education space for a while. You've invested in a bunch of companies such as Sora, Prenda, OutSchool. How have your thoughts changed around online education as you've invested in these different companies? Yeah. My perspective on education was probably pretty contrarian. Uh, five years ago, and I think it's not as contrarian now. So let's start back a few years ago. I had started my third my third company. I started three companies. My third company was called Zeal, mm-hmm. and the idea behind Zeal was real time math tutoring network where kids would get help on demand with a whiteboard and with audio on precisely the problem they needed help with. And so that was 2013. It was probably a little bit early to be using kind of real-time audio and WebRTC and all the things that make the web live. But it went pretty well and we sold that company. And I guess my thesis from that was that the web was gonna change from a fundamentally static medium where you looked at you know images and text on the page and that most of the web would become live over time where you know people would be talking to each other working with each other etc and so that really informed a lot of my investment decision making i was looking actively for companies that believed that live was going to be their differentiator um two of the first that i invested in were lambda school which does online computer science Mm -hmm program for for uh, students, adults usually that are trying to get their first job in computer science and it's all online. All the instruction is uh, small group uh, instruction. So people are working together in a group with a TA. It's highly interactive. And OutSchool was also one of the very first investments I made. And my feeling was that if you could build something where a teacher and a set of students were in a very small group online that a lot of the humanity and trust and relationship could be transmitted that way. Although that was a controversial thing to think at the time, right? People thought, well, if you really want to build human relationships, you have to do it offline. Um, And now I think with COVID, we've kind of fast forwarded a few years. I, I thought this might take 
five years for, for people to realize how valuable um, live interaction would be in terms of really democratizing access to experts and to people in a real way. I think that the MOOCs, you know, Khan Academy, Coursera, Udacity, Udemy, um, you know, their, their theory was different, which is just pure access to any knowledge would be a good thing. But as an educator, I didn't really buy that at all. I've never seen students learn by just being presented with information and kind of learning yeah. it themselves. That's, you know, uh, the stats for the MOOCs have proved that out for decades now that, you know, um, maybe 10% of people can do that. But all the rest of us, you know, we need a little bit more motivation, a little bit more community. You know, there's more of a kind of a social, personal aspect to learning. And so that that really was a thesis I had a few years ago that I think not many people had. But now I think more and more it's the thesis that most people are starting to have, not just in education, but in other areas. I mean, you see things like telehealth completely exploding during covid one, because there are no alternatives, but two, because it kind of forces people to try it once, and then once they try it, they kind of wonder, well, why was I driving to the doctor and waiting an hour and all this stuff when I can just you know, hit a button and, and talk to my doctor? So I think what COVID is really doing, both for education and a lot of other spaces, is making people realize you can actually use it for human interactions um, in a way that, you know, you may not want to never talk to someone. You may want to go see them and continue your relationship in, in kind of um, the real world as well. But it's pretty darn good for a lot of things that I think most people six months ago would have said, no, 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 you've got yeah. to do it in person. As you said, the need has sort of accelerated for online interaction and we're seeing that scale up now. And in a post-COVID world, do you see institutions moving in that direction as well? Yeah. Uh, well, I think right now institutions are being forced to move in that direction. All right. You know, my daughter is going to college in the fall, and it's crazy all the stuff that the colleges are coming up with to try to keep their tuitions where they are, right? Yeah. Basically laid bare the fact that higher ed is a is a very serious money-making machine and they can't afford to turn off the machine even for a semester. So um, I guess what I would say is that COVID is only accelerating the things that I think were already happening. So like a Lambda school where you go to school for six months, you get a solid computer science education and it costs you $30,000 that you pay if you get a job over the next couple of years. Mm -hmm. that's a very different proposition to a student than, uh, hey, welcome to Harvard. You're going to pay us $80,000 up front every year and no guarantees. Mm -hmm. So I just think that students now are savvy and realize like that promise and that brand that those colleges give them, it, it's worth something, but maybe it's not worth, you know, um, 10x what a school like Lambda is charging. So I think that was already starting to change. And I know that Lambda gets brought up at 
board meetings of, of universities a lot because if you're paying any attention as a university, that's a scary thing. Hmm. So I think what COVID um, has really done is take away the advantage that kind of traditional universities have, which frankly had nothing to do with academics. It had to do with the fact that you were going to go to this beautiful place and hang out with awesome people and socialize and network. And, you know, it was a great place for learning as well. But the majority, probably 70, 80% of the value was like all that interaction with people in that place. And that's just gone now and probably will be gone for a couple years. Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, for, for the set of kids who can afford it and for whom, you know, whatever, their family's gone to Harvard for generations, awesome. Like, they're going to keep doing that. I think for most everybody else, this is going to cause them to think a lot more seriously about, like, well, what are my options? What did I really want? Um, that kind of thing. So I don't think it'll change overnight. The brands of universities are incredibly strong, the strongest brands in the world. So people still want those brands. Um, And who wouldn't want the experience you get in college where you get to hang out with people and have a good time? I think that people will do the analysis more deeply on like, is this really worth it? And Mm -hmm. what are my alternatives um, if I don't go to a four-year college when I'm 18 years old or whatever. Hmm. You know, another, another thing that I've always found interesting about education, having been involved in kind of all parts of it from kind of early childhood up, is it's quite bizarre that we go to school from kind of age five to age 21, and then we never go to school again. Okay. It's just kind of, it's a model that you know, obviously was built in a time where things were changing very quickly, hmm. but it actually doesn't really make any sense anymore. You know, it probably makes sense for you to go back to school for six months every five years or so just to mm-hmm. catch up, mm-hmm. right? Because uh, there's so much changing. And I think that flaw in our system or that kind of structural, um, the way it's structured keeps a lot of the retraining we want to have happen from happening because it's just not the norm to do. Um, so, so I think, you know, right now companies are trying to figure out how you do that better to do reskilling and, and things like that. But actually I think from a policy standpoint, countries should kind of take a deeper look on like, well, where, how much does someone need you know, going into their first job and then how often do they need to get updated? And let's, let's try to make that a normal thing as opposed to unusual. Yeah. I think that's a, that's an interesting way to think about it. And I think we've seen companies do that as well, right? Companies have executive um, education programs, executive learning programs, but that's more reliant on a company doing that themselves or an individual taking the initiative themselves. It's not a common thought that people would have. I I always worry a little bit about leaving, you know, I'm, I'm obviously kind of a a believer in the capitalist system, but I'm a little worried about leaving all of this to companies Yeah, because one of the challenges for a company is that, you know, basically hiring and retention is, Mm -hmm. um, are really clear metrics 
yeah. um, for companies. And these things like uh, productivity, and they're very hard to measure and they take a long time. So how much should you invest in somebody remaining current at what they're doing? There are probably times where it's obvious. You know, if you have somebody that is an analyst, but they're not up to speed on the latest data science techniques, yeah, they probably need to go do that and you're probably yeah. willing to pay for it. But there are a huge number of things where people are just slowly but surely getting out of date. And I'm not sure you can just leave it to the companies to like deal with that correctly. So I, I do think there's a role for policy in there. Hmm, definitely. Uh, so something I, I particularly found interesting about your story was that you, you have a background in advertising. What made you decide to get out of that and then yeah. get focused on education? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, the, the story, that, that company, NetGravity, was one mm -hmm. of the first uh, ad server companies on the internet. And the reason I started that company was that I was convinced that, you know, things were going to stay free on the internet. There was just too much information and, and these old models of let's hoard the information and charge, you know, the newspaper reader or whatever for it, like didn't make any sense to me. And so I really wanted the internet to be free. And that was kind of the, the reason I got into it. Um, I thought, well, advertising seems to be the way you can keep it free to the user. Um, and it was an amazing ride and we ended up with, you know, 70% of the biggest websites using our software. We took the company public, um, we sold it, you know, for far too much money. And so all of that was super interesting ride, learned a lot, great outcome. Um, but the mission sucked as far as I was concerned. It's not that keeping things free was bad, but... I think, you know, as we've seen over time, advertising is just, the, you know, the, the, I forget who, who said this, but like, you know, if, if, you're, if you're on this thing and it's free, that, that means you're the product, right? Mm -hmm. You're, you're yeah. being sold. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't really like that at all. So, you know, when that was over and done and I, you know, I didn't go with the company when we sold it, there was nothing really for me to do. I was very clear I didn't want to do that anymore. Uh, okay. I was super not interested in kind of the advertising space. And so just by serendipity, I had a friend starting a school, a middle school uh, for low-income kids, and I helped him do that. I kind of became the COO and kind of found a building and a principal and hired the teachers, did the budget, that stuff. Um, and we opened that school, and I was like, wow, this is a way better mission <laughs> than <laughs> advertising. Yeah. It's not a very scalable thing. So that's, I didn't like that, but uh, just in terms of like, you know, affecting the lives of children and parents, it was way, way better than uh, anything I was doing before. And so then I went off and I taught for a few years, uh, I taught elementary school and middle school, which was awesome. And then started my second company, Rocket Ship, which was a, a network of charter schools for elementary school kids, low-income kids, um, in San Jose. And I, I would just say like my advice to, to founders is when you know two things well, then you have a differentiated advantage. So I, I was pretty deep in technology and I understood mm -hmm. that very well. And then I got quite deep in education. And so, I mean, there are maybe a couple handfuls of people that 
have both skills that I know, but it's not a very deep set. And so the way that effect has affected me and does affect me when I invest is you, you have a sense for when somebody believes too strongly that technology can solve a problem or when they don't believe strongly enough that technology can solve a problem. You know, people coming from educator side, people coming from technologist side. So um, education is a tricky one, like health and other things where the human element is super important, mm -hmm. um, but technology is going to completely change it over the next couple decades. So like trying to navigate how quickly those changes come and in what ways is pretty pretty difficult. Something interesting that Aditya mentioned the other day and I'd like to hear about is he mentioned that you were a part of the, a small community back in the day that you should geek out over Apple products. Mm, yeah. So I'd like to hear what was your experience like in a community back then? Yeah, like this was when I was like 12 years old. I had gotten... My, my father was uh, prescient enough to buy me an Apple II computer, which kind of shaped my life uh, nice. completely. And that was uh, 1978. That was a long time ago now. Um, what was going on back then was that these personal computers were so new that there was a very small community of people that cared about them <laughs> um, and that used them. And in the Apple II world, um, we had these kind of users groups that we would all go and kind of talk about what we were doing, trade software, like, you know, hear the latest updates on what different companies were doing, et cetera. And it was super informal. I think it was about once a month. And I would go with my dad. My dad was kind of long suffering, I think, in shepherd me, shepherding me around when I was that age. Um, but for me, it was amazing because it was like, wow, here are all the people that care about the exact thing that I care about. And I could be as big a geek as I wanted to be. And it was totally cool because everybody else was a geek as well. Um, and the story I told Deja because they, they were uh, kind of lamenting the fact that a lot of communities go through this thing where, um, you know, people come into the community that are not as much the geek super nerds and then they kind of commercialize and popularize and then the community changes. And that's exactly what happened with uh, Apple II's. Um, you know, what, what, what happened at the beginning was once a year we'd have this conference in San Francisco, which I can't even remember the name, but it, it was cool because it was, again, a just a bigger set of all the geeks and we would all show up and see what was going on. It was great. Um, and then by the time, you know, probably three or four years later, maybe eight, 1981 or 1982 people's suits started to show up. And we're like, huh. who are those people? Like what, what are they up to? <laughs> um, and of course they were there because they had figured out this was going to be a big thing and they were going to try to, commercialize it and figure it out. And I remember thinking, uh, as a, you know, one of the nerds, like, well, this sucks. Like, who are those guys? And they're ruining the whole thing. My takeaway from that was it was probably really important that those guys with suits showed up because otherwise it would have been this cool, well-kept secret that mm -hmm. you had 
enormous power when you had this computer on your desktop. And it was good that the rest of the world got it. So um, I definitely empathize with <laughs> communities as they grow and change, but I'm not quite in the camp of like, that's always a bad thing. Sometimes yeah. it works out. <laughs> yeah, sometimes it works out. You've been part of the internet from its early days. How do creators monetize the internet then? Right, as yeah. compared to how they're doing it right now. How was it different back then? Yeah, you know, it was really different. So when we started Net Gravity, we also were pretty mission-oriented. We, we also thought that one of the things the internet would do quickly is allow individual creators to more or less create kind of media company of one or school of one where, you know, um, if you were an awesome artist, like people would come find you and you would be able to teach classes or do things. And that we always felt that, you know, advertising was going to be a big part of those things because if you've got enough people following you, free was always a good idea. And so we could support them that way. Um, it didn't turn out to be true at all, though. What happened very quickly was that the internet kind of re-aggregated um, media into both existing media companies and some new, but there were very, very few individuals who kind of were able to rise above the fray and make, make interesting businesses. And I think it took social media and kind of a decade plus of social media to create these kind of larger than life kind of personal brands that um, I think are super important for, for people to have the opportunity to build a media company around them. And I guess what interests me about that space is one, you know, I'm, I'm less interested in, you know, is the internet good for Kanye West? I'm more interested in, is the internet good for that person with maybe 10,000 followers that, you know, talks about home gardening and in fact, they're really good at it and a lot of people are into it. Like that person to me, let's say that they're working in whatever, a data entry job all day and they only get to talk about gardening nights and weekends. It would be awesome if they got to change their life and like, dedicated to the thing that they love to do. Is it possible for somebody with not an enormous number of followers, but some, and a very specific thing that they want to teach or, or get across to be able to, to figure out a business? Mm -hmm. um, I actually think many of them are already pretty savvy on how to navigate social media and get a lot of uh, kind of free views and followers. Like I think the acquisition side of those businesses for creators, people have figured out pretty well. And you have these platforms like YouTube that are just insane for it. So mm -hmm. they've done a good job at that. What they're not too great at, frankly, is creating community, um, figuring out how to create long-term engagement mm -hmm. for their users um, figuring out what, what it's worth charging, et cetera. All those kind of, um, business aspects have really not come into play. I mean, you get these things, um, that, you know, arguably were quite good for a lot of creators like teachable or Udemy where I could post a class, I could make 30, $50,000. It was kind of a one-time thing. And then, yeah. and then it was over. 
Um, that's still better than nothing. But I think, you know, what I hope for is that we'll end up with thousands, some someday millions of these, you know, the, the person with a uh, uh, rabid fan base of people that want to do personal gardening who are willing to pay them enough that they can quit their job. Because I just think there will be a lot of goodness unlocked from that, a lot of freedom mm -hmm. um, for the creators. Uh, and I think that's just going to be huge for society if we can figure that out. And I think we're in a stage where the challenge is the mechanics of creating an engaged community are not very well, well understood. Mm -hmm. And the business of how you do that is very much not well understood. You know, a lot of the things we take for granted in building internet companies is how you do acquisition, how you think about retention. We have a lot of metrics we worry about. And, you know, the average creator, that's not where they come yeah. from at all. Yeah. So, you know, I think at the beginning, we're going to have, you know, a few examples of people who figured that out. And then hopefully what happens is that those methods are things that we can build into platforms that other people can figure out without having to know nearly as much about, yeah. you know, how to do it. So I'm hoping over the next couple of years, we start to see that happening. And certainly we see some of it happening right now. You, you look at like very straightforward things like super peer with fans paying to have direct one-on-one -on -one conversations yeah. Uh, with a creator. Cameo, obviously, is an example of just like monetizing kind of celebrity. Yeah. But I'm not sure that that's the long-term game here. I think the long-term game is much more probably what you guys have built in your community. Like what keeps somebody excited, engaged, you know, makes them feel like, hey, this is actually worth whatever a month for me to pay. Mm -hmm. The, the other thing that's changed, I would say, Sheldon, that uh, I think is a great change is that the live interactions um, used to monetize well in these very kind of high need areas. So, you know, if you take Lambda School and OutSchool, mm -hmm. the fact that Lambda School could go eight hours a day in these small Zoom Slack groups um, was really only possible because at the end of the day, you know, somebody was paying them $30,000 over the next couple of years for, for that education yeah. or without school, you know, it was only possible because, um, to get your kid, the kind of enrichment that you wanted as a parent paying $10 an hour for them to be in a small group with a teacher was worth it to you. Mm -hmm. But I think one of the things that's happening now is that lots more people are interested in live interactions. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think what we're going to see is a lot more applications that are not at those super high price points, but are at more of like a Netflix, Spotify type pricing, you know, 10, 15 mm -hmm. bucks a month. Um, and those are obviously challenging to pull off. Right. What the user wants is very clear. They want to have the interaction and connection, but they also want to pay this lower price. So mm -hmm. you can either say, sorry, we can't do it for that price. Or you can try to think about like, well, what would allow us to do it for that price? So I think with the live side, there's going to be an awful lot of work 
around figuring out methods for um, doing um, pretty good interaction, but at better prices. So, you know, two of the techniques that I think are going to happen is one kind of large group instruction, but with mechanisms for feedback and Q&A and stuff like a lot more integrated than you see in most of these kind of Zoom webinar yeah. style things. Uh, and the other is kind of peer-based learning. So kind of you can imagine if that big webinar led by somebody you really want to see then breaks you up into small groups and you're working with, you know, four or five other people and then you come back and you report to the, to the you know, the creator or whatever. I think there are mechanisms where you can hit those price points, mm -hmm. but you just have to really architect what you're doing around that. Um, so live is interesting because it has these price constraints, you know, mostly around the people. Community is a different thing in a lot of ways because it's, um, well, I think we all belong to, you know, a lot of communities that kind of start out good and then you're like, yeah, I don't really do that yeah. one anymore, right? So I think the default in community is like decreasing engagement. There's kind of an entropy uh, mm -hmm. thing going on there. And so I think that one, well, it could be also my perspective because I've been so deep in live, but my outsider's perspective on community is that we haven't cracked that one as well uh, as live. Live became very clear that you get engagement almost for free. Like, it's like, I'm talking to you, yeah. like, this is engaging, this is great. Whereas, you know, if you're on a Slack channel or whatever, it's, it's not as inherently kind of interactive, like motivating. And so somehow you got to crack that. So, so I think both of those factors live and community are unsolved problems in different ways right now. And somehow they both have to be true. It's my thesis um, to create these like really awesome kind of longstanding paid communities. Mm -hmm. With in terms of the future of the space, do you, do you see individual creators from different domains coming together and maybe forming an institution? And then do creators need to become institutions to scale? That's a good question. One of the spaces I've spent a lot of time in is kind of, so I think there's going to be a segmentation, right? Where if you're talking about like um, the, the gardening guru, um, I don't think the gardening guru necessarily needs five other gardening gurus to create yeah. something that matters. Um, I think it changes depending on kind of what the thing is. The farther you are on the pure hobbyist side, mm -hmm. like I think, no, you don't need to aggregate. I think the question really is if you take something uh, different, like it doesn't even have to be fully professional, but quasi-professional things that affect people's professional lives, mm -hmm. uh, a design community or a marketing community or something that makes them more relevant in their field. I do think you're right that what we may see is not just a single creator, but a faculty. Mm -hmm. And I actually... I don't have any problem with the, the general construct of, you know, an institution with a faculty. I think that's a great thing because it can add a lot of value to the student. I mean, 
one way to look at it is kind of the same bundling that you would see yeah. in a cable channel. It's like, well, I don't really like that one, but I like yeah. that one. So I'm, I'm willing to pay, you know, whatever my 20 bucks a month. Cause I like enough of these folks that could really be valuable. I think that I'm hopeful that we're entering an era where it's a lot more common for people to be their own uh, boss and mm -hmm. be freelancers or entrepreneurs or whatever. And I say that because if it's working, if like whatever you're doing is working and you're getting jobs and stuff like that, I think people are a lot happier in that situation than, you know, when somebody's telling them what to do. And that's not hundred percent true. Some people do like structure and stuff like that, but an awful lot of people want to kind of, do their own thing. I had an experience recently with that that kind of just slammed it into my head. So I just made an investment in a company called Marketer Hire that kind of uh, slices up marketing into about 12 different areas like SEO and Facebook paid and stuff like that, and then finds expert marketers in each of those areas. So as a okay. startup, you don't need to hire like a junior marketing flunky yeah. that kind of sucks at everything. Mm -hmm. You hire the world's greatest SEO person for five hours a week and they help you with your SEO and you know, they're not cheap, but yeah. they get done and they're amazing. And, and so I was like, okay, that's interesting. And I talked to some of the freelancers, the marketers on the other end, almost all of whom had started this as a side hustle where they were working a full-time job and then, oh, let me do 10 hours of this a week because it's mm -hmm. good. Almost all of whom had become full-time freelancers because of this. Mm -hmm. And I asked one of them, because I knew that one of the companies that they were doing work for, like, that's an amazing company. Why don't you join them full-time? And the person looked at me like I was nuts. Like, what about my life don't you understand? I work any hours I want. I'm making more money than I ever got. I can live wherever I want. Like, I'm working with five companies and I'm learning a ton. Like, you could just tell, like, for that type of creative professional, there was no way that they would want to go back to the old world yeah. at this point. So I'm kind of hopeful with the creator world that's the norm. Um, and, and I agree with you. Aggregation is always a thing. So I'm kind of hopeful that if there is aggregation, you know, that faculty is more like a, a faculty of freelancers where they're not like under contract and mm -hmm. some boss is telling them what to do. Well, we'll see. I just, I'm a big believer that the future of work actually is a lot about personal freedom. Hmm. I agree. Um, We've seen, so in the last few years, we've also seen a lot of new creators come up, right? Um, creators are great at what they're doing, which is creating the subject matter, getting, they have a good sense around the content, they know how to put it together. And like you said, they're very good at acquisition. There's different platforms to help them get there. Yeah. But then scale and retention does tend to get an issue. And like, what do you think they can learn from, say, founders, for example, right? Because I think founders face similar problems, but I understand there's different markets, but what do you think they can uh, learn from? No, I, I think it's an excellent question, and I've thought about that one a bit. Um, you know, the real problem is the same problem that retailers have when they use mm -hmm. credit cards. You know, the credit card companies don't give them any data. So mm -hmm. it's kind of hard to know, like, how loyal are my customers? I don't know. 
I, I have no, it's anonymous to them. It's like, you know, I, I, unless I ask for that data separately, I don't know that, you know, Shelton showed up at my store four times last month. Mm -hmm. So a huge part of the problem for creators, I think, is that since they're on these other platforms and those platforms give them some information, but not really enough on their audience, they haven't even been able to think about engagement and retention. Like, I think it would be pretty useful to a creator to know, you know, how many times per week on average is somebody viewing my videos and how many people churn out and then go talk to the people that churned out. So I do think there's one aspect of this that's purely structural for creators, which is, um, they're not being given the kind of analytics they need, even if they wanted to use them. So I think that's a problem. I think the second problem is really what you're getting at, which is often creators are creative professionals. You know, they, they, they have one thing they're really passionate about, but they don't necessarily want to be a business person, right? Mm -hmm. So they don't necessarily want to think about like engagement and retention and churn and stuff like that. So, I actually think the role of founders in some ways is to help them think about that as little as possible, right? I, I, I doubt where we're going is the average creator understanding all the things we understand about audiences. Yeah. Um, maybe it'd be cool if people want to learn all that and mm -hmm. we could teach them because I think it's a really good way to think about your audience. But I think more likely than not, you'll have, couple dozen who do think that way who figure it out um, because I don't think you can build great communities with no kind of measurement of how your audience is doing. I don't think it's possible. Yeah. And so I think a few people will get it right. And then I think the founders are going to come along and figure out, okay, what did those people figure out about the way audiences work in this medium and then put it into mm -hmm. Uh, a platform that other people, other creators can use without really knowing like churn rates and stuff like that. That's my hope. <laughs> yeah. Um, cool. So one final question before we sign yeah. off. Um, we've spoken a great deal about uh, education as well as the creator community that's sort of emerging now, as well as how you've seen education evolve and what has been. And also I think a key point we touched on is how COVID has accelerated the need for some things that by default maybe would have taken five, 10 years more. So how do you see the future of education in the sense that if, uh, if you had a kid of say, I was a kid, do I necessarily need to go to school or do I need to go to college or can I just subscribe to a bunch of creators and then progress yeah. from there? Yeah, but I, I, I think it's legit. Um, I think, you know, when you look at uh, Prenda, which does micro schools, they are very much student driven and about student agency. Mm -hmm. But there's enough structure that you kind of have to also level up in the things that, you know, you need to. Like they have a math goals every week. And, you know, even if you're a kid that's like, yeah, math, whatever, you kind of have to do some of that too. Mm -hmm. So, I think there's always going to be a role for some amount of structure, but I do think that you can make it much more student driven than we have because it's so much better if a student's like, I really want to learn about science right now. And then they go do that as opposed to, okay, it's 
you know, whatever, 1.30, now we're going to do social studies. Like, <laughs> that sucks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right, John. Um, thanks for your time this morning. Yeah. Um, you shared a lot of insights, and I think they're very valuable. It was, it was great, to, great to be able to talk about this stuff. I appreciate your listening. <laughs> yeah. Thanks a lot. Uh, this is going to be out. Cool. All right. Great bye, John. Nice to meet you, too. Cheers. Bye. Have a good day. Bye. Bye. Hi, thanks for listening to the end. Um, if you're a creator, we'd love to get in touch with you. Even if you're not a creator, and the fact that you just listened to this entire podcast, we'd love to talk to you about something or the other. <laughs> but thanks for, thanks for listening, and we'll have another episode for you next week. Um, I hope you enjoyed this. And here's a fun fact. Butterflies taste with their feet. I feel like I need to give you that for sticking around for so long. Ciao. <laughs>